Welcome to MediaPath. I am Louise Palanker. And I'm Fritz Coleman. We are like that lovely librarian who helped you find the latest Beverly Cleary book and then pointed out <laughs> that if you like Henry and Ribsy, you may also love Sounder or Johnny Tremaine or Across Five Aprils or Super Fudge. We lead you towards books and shows and movies that you may enjoy. That was and impressive. The, and thank you. And the good news is that we will never ask you for any late fines, although Prime may charge you $20 for a film you thought you were streaming for free, so be careful where you click. Coming up, we'll be talking to Scott Shepard, Hollywood royalty, who has carved out a stellar career as a TV producer, showrunner, and mystery writer. Scott joins us shortly. But first, Fritz, what are you recommending for us? All right, I want to talk about a great new series called The Patient. Mm -hmm. This is a series uh, produced for FX, uh, but it streams on Hulu right now. This is a psychological thriller in the extreme. Steve Carell plays psychotherapist Alan Strauss, who gets taken hostage by one of his patients, Sam Fortner, who reveals himself to be a serial killer. He has an unusual request to help him curb his homicidal tendencies. That's all I'm going to give away. Alan, the doctor, has to unwind Sam's disturbed mind to stop Sam from killing and to save himself as well. The show is created by the guys that did The Americans, which is hugely uh, popular on FX. Amazing tension, especially when it's just Alan and Sam on screen playing psychological chess with one another. There are some elements to Alan's life, the, the therapist's life, which kind of put pressure on how he reacts to stuff, too. I'm telling you, this is the best acting you've ever seen from Steve Carell. It's so well done. Very quiet, very contemplative. He way underplays it. He's absolutely believable as this therapist. It's 10 episodes. Episode 4 dropped this week. It's The Patient on Hulu. I, I really recommend it. So this is like if What About Bob was not twisted enough for you <laughs> there you go okay all right i'm there okay so uh you may have received this news alert on your phone uh i went to the movies i did hear that i'm so yeah. happy that mm -hmm. you got out of this place. right yes uh i have four shots and a recent covid case recovery fortifying my immunity and so we went to see where the crawdads sing because we so loved the book this is a book with 331,000 reviews and a solid five-star average on Amazon. So the film was much anticipated, and you will be able to stream it free soon. You can purchase it right now on Amazon, YouTube, and Apple TV. Where the Crawdads Sing tells the story of Kaya, an abandoned girl who raises herself in the dangerous marshlands of North Carolina. You celebrate her courage, her resilience, her ingenuity, her brilliance, and her fortitude as survival breaks way to mastery and accomplishment. But of course, a woman alone in the woods is what certain empty-headed town folk men may refer to as an attractive nuisance. Rather than managing their own sexual desires, they seek to control and punish her. Metaphors abound in crawdads. The marsh is secluded and mysterious and wild like Kaya. Seagulls are familiar and accepting like family. Feathers are friendship. The crawdads, well... They can't actually sing because they are fish, and the only fish that can sing is the bass who hangs on your wall and knows some of the words to take me to the river. Am I right, zoologists? <laughs> can I get an amen? All right. As Kaya matures and begins to explore romantic connections, one boy breaks her heart and another breaks his neck in a fall and is found dead. The marsh girl is the primary suspect. The unfolding trial threatens to reveal that far darker than the secluded life of the marsh girl are the secrets hidden deep within the lives of respectable town people where the crawdad sings stars daisy edgar jones as kaya taylor john smith plays tate 
Harris Dickinson is Chase. The cast also includes Michael Hyatt, Sterling Macer Jr., and David Strathairn. The film is produced by Reese Witherspoon and Lauren Neustadter. I found it to be a beautiful adaptation of a well-loved book. Sounds fantastic. Yeah, I think you should like it. Oh, Zoom it. Yeah, please do. Uh, let's welcome our guest. Scott Shepard has overseen hundreds of hours of the television that has warmed our souls. The Equalizer, Miami Vice, Quantum Leap, and many more. He teaches TV writing at the University of Texas in Austin, writes best-selling mystery novels, and comes from a long line of showbiz legends, beginning with his great-grandfather, Louis B. Mayer. Welcome, Scott. Thanks for having me. Great to see you, Scott. Not yeah. only that, are you kidding? His father produced Breakfast at Tiffany's. Right. His maternal grandfather started 20th Century Fox and Universal Studios. He's pretty much four-walled show business. He had to go into show business. It was mandatory. That's how That was a family business, right, Scott? Man. Yeah. I mean, I didn't really understand what the family business was growing <laughs> up. Um, I mean, I just knew there were a lot of people who showed up on television or in the movies that would come by the house. Um, and I think... Uh, I, I kind of made a thing that the first 10 years of my uh, TV writing career, I think, you know, that I kind of didn't talk about my family at all. And I kind of, I think I probably chose writing because I loved books and reading and I wanted to write. And I also figured in a, you know, business that has, you know, a lot of nepotism and weird things, I wanted to be accepted for what I was doing. And, you know, the printed page hopefully speaks for itself as opposed to who you know, what you did, et cetera, et cetera. And now, I mean, you know, 30, 40 years later, like you say, lots of shows, hundreds of scripts later, a few books. I'm kind of going, okay, I, you know, I'm happy to talk about my family. And there's interesting stories, and it's you know, so it's a tough spot for you to be in as a child. Holy cow, trying to carve yourself out of that pack. Um, yeah, I guess. Uh, so yeah, so I took a little bit of a different route. You know, I guess writing and reading a few books, as you can see, as I'm surrounded by. By the way, I like both your guys' recommendations. Um, in fact, we're going to watch. The fourth episode, I think, of the of the of the patient tonight, mm -hmm. and I'm anxious to see the movie. I love that book, and I love that girl. She was in um, Normal People, I think, right? The girl who's the, the star of that. Yeah, movie. the best American actresses are are British. Yes, of so. course. Yes, well, well, you know, the TV show I'm doing now, we have it's, it's distinctly country western, and uh, every I don't think there's a person from you know, the South or the or country, except for Trace, you know, we're doing the show Monarch that just came on the last couple of nights. Um, so where yeah, is that? let's plug that. Where, where is that? Where can that be? Uh, yeah. So we, uh, me and a buddy uh, came in about a third of the way through and took over uh, the show Monarch. It's on Fox. It premiered night before last. Um, they showed it again last night. And they're showing it again tomorrow night, the, the pilot. And it's, um, it starts next Tuesday in its regular time slot, nine o'clock here. Um, yeah, that's it right there. Um, and it's, got, it's with Susan Sarandon and Trace Atkins, a big country singer. Nice. Uh, and Anna Friel is a really good actress. Where she was in Pushing Daisies and Marcel and a lot of British things. And she, and what it is literally is a, um, we kind of describe it as Empire meets uh, Nashville meets uh, Succession. Uh, it's uh, it's really a country western family soap opera. Great music, so it's a musical, but there's a lot of mystery, mayhem, and twists and turns. And uh, it's fun, you know. It's a fun network show, and uh, we'll see how it does. It did, it did well. I mean, Fox is really happy with how it debuted the other night. We'll see what happens. You can also see it on Hulu. You've got me sold. That sounds amazing. And whatever Trace Atkins said, you believe because the guy's got the pipes, <laughs> man. I, I like. I'm not a big. I'm a much more of a big rock and roll, classic rock and roll, huge Springsteen amongst others fans. Um, I knew a little bit of country music, mostly from like Urban Cowboy. 
Uh, my sister, I told her what I was doing like six, seven months ago. She goes, Trace Atkins, oh my God, the lowest voice in country music. <laughs> I know. No, he and, is. And he's actually the best. He turns out he's the best thing in the show. I mean, he's sort of like uh, kind of that Chris Christopherson sort of yeah. art, you know, like back in Starsborn. Yeah, he's, he's cool. It's interesting because country musicians are storytellers. Whenever country music is discussed, the, the stories and the songs are discussed. And so, you know, this year we had Tim McGraw and Faith Hill in, right. uh, I in the, can never remember the name of the year, but... 18. Yeah, the spinoff of Yellowstone, right? Yeah, and they were they were like, you know, you would never know that they weren't actors if you didn't know. So no, no. Well, you know, what's the old joke about? You know, what do you get if you play a country song backwards? You get your uh, trailer back, your girlfriend back, and your dog back. Right? <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, let's out. let's drill down on the business a little bit while you're talking about it. So the the thing was piloted and then it aired three times or will have aired three times. So at what point do you get a season pickup or how do you get, I mean, the business is so different now with streaming, especially yeah, how do really, you, how do you get, how do you get a guarantee? I don't know. I mean, we literally came in, like I say, you know, to kind of help the show, which was sort of um, a little problematic to start. Um, and it was supposed to come on in January. Talk about weird stories of the business. It was supposed to come on back in January at the end of the NFC football game. And then what ended up happening was because we had to come in and we reshot like four or five of the first episodes. We reordered them like a giant Sudoku puzzle because we tried to keep as much as there and then kind of moved it forward. And then Trace got COVID and a couple of the actors got COVID. And here it was like in January. Um, and suddenly we couldn't stay on the air uh, if we come on the air. But Fox really was happy with the way we had turned the show around and turned it into you know something they're really happy with. And we think it's fun. They said, we're going to save it for the fall. So then what they do is they put it on the fall and they put it on on Sunday. You know, and I, I've been doing, you know, I mean, we've all been doing this a long time, this business, you know, the media business. And you think you've seen it all until something changes. So they were going to put it on. Uh, after NFL football on Sunday with a big preview, like like that was going to be in a slot Sunday night at eight o'clock in the East and here and et cetera, et cetera, you know, five o'clock here, et cetera, et cetera. And, and then rerun it a couple times. And then what ended up happening, like 10 minutes before it aired, my buddy who runs the show that had me come on and help him sends me an email. He just got an email saying, Oh, good news. Like Fox is like literally decided because the games didn't go into overtime. We're going to start 15 minutes early. I'm going like, cause we get more live people watching it. I'm going, yeah, okay. That's good. I guess more people <laughs> watching it, but what about all the people like my mother-in-law and people back East who had taped it at eight o'clock and called me later that night and said, what's going on? Right. 15 minutes in early. Oh, well, we'll get plenty of more times to watch it. And so they got a big number. But, you know, people have watched it and then you watch it on Hulu. So I guess they take all these numbers and they put them up in the air. And then the big thing will be to see how we do next um, Tuesday. But supposedly, you know, it was their highest rated premiere in three years on the network. Ooh. But, you know, I mean, for most of us, right, if we're going to recommend shows we're watching, I have to say, uh, I don't think I watch anything really on the networks. I don't watch anything live except for sports and even tape that. So it's really hard. You don't need a huge number. Mm -hmm. I think they are very invested in the show. Um, and I think what's the way we kind of did the show, it's 11 episodes and we're on for six weeks straight. And then we were preempted for two weeks for the World Series and the election. And we built it to kind of a cool mystery cliffhanger so that you can advertise that during, you know, the baseball games. I kind of been joking recently. If you watched football, it's like you're watching a monarch ad and a football <laughs> game broke out. Did um, you write any of the episodes? Um, I wrote, um, I wrote a lot of this, 
what I basically did is I wrote three of the stories um, and worked on all the scripts in terms of coming up with the stories. Mm-hmm. And then John Feldman, who came in to run the show, is a really good friend of mine. We've done a bunch of shows together, um, like True Calling and uh, Designated Survivor and Reunion and shows like that. <clears throat> you know, we had a staff that would do the stories. We, I kept pushing the story engine forward. And then John and I literally spent uh, the rest of our time with the editors in the editing rooms. Um, but what was amazing is I it was supposed to be 10 weeks of work. It turned out to be seven months, mm-hmm. but um, I never left this room, which was unbelievably great. Oh my um, gosh. The whole time you got to work from home. Yeah. And I'm never, I'm not, you know, I mean, I, I kind of was doing a little bit of this remote editing. Um, we had a show called Haven for a few years, a sci-fi show on, uh, it was based on a, a Stephen King book and we were uh, cutting in Nova Scotia or Toronto. And I did it then it's so perfected. We would have the writer's room in the morning. Um, and we, you know, sit for like two or three hours on Zoom. Then I go and work with the editors, but the editors would be like the top half of the screen. Like I'm looking here would be the picture. Mm-hmm. And then they'd be down at the bottom. It was to me great because we were working around the clock 24 seven because of the, the way we found the show when we first took it over. We had to work Christmas day, Thanksgiving day, but we're home sitting in our sweats at one o'clock on a Saturday morning. You're not stuck in an editing room somewhere having to drive home. And you can actually see the editors in their own boxes. I can actually see them as opposed to s- sitting behind them, like mm. literally poking them on the shoulder. And it was um, really great. But one of the editors who I literally talked to every day for like four months, I finally met him. At a place at the start with Beverly Glendale for the first time. Uh, I never met him until like a week ago. So, are you a DoorDash person or a Grubhub or uh, DoorDash and Postmates? Okay. And, you know, and we we literally do. Um, you know, I'm sort of like my wife and I say I'm the hunter and forager. I go out and get the food and bring it back in the market, out of the market. We eat outside lunches, but I, you know, I don't know for a writer. And the life I've had, you know, and I was working on these two novels the last couple of years and pilots and everything. This has been fine. I'm lucky enough that I'm living in a nice house here in the West Side. We were talking about when we first got married 35 years ago, I was doing the Equalizer in New York and we were living in a one bedroom apartment the size of this office. And I can't imagine what it would have, would have been like that first year of this pandemic to be cooped up. I mean, we have a nice view outside. My, we had a pool. We feel blessed, you know, and I felt like I got I read 75 books last year, did 11 hours of television, wrote a novel, did three pilots and still had time in my hand. Just all that time not being in the car commuting. We're all in L.A. You know what it's like. Yeah. Have to do yeah. Let, let's go back to your um, family history. I'm proud to say that you are the first guest we've ever had that has gone to baseball games with Joe DiMaggio and Marilyn Monroe. Uh, I might have done that. I don't remember that, but I did go with, um, like, well, my father knew them. And he has a very famous, interesting Marilyn Monroe story, I can tell you. Um, and I don't remember meeting her. I probably did when I was a In your old. vast uh, work of background information on the internet, somehow that came into well, play. I, you know, the, my dad represented Marilyn Monroe in the, in the 50s. And um, I was born in New York. Um in the mid fifties. And when we were living there, it's so funny. My my mother told me a story when she was pregnant with me and my dad was uh, that him and my, that my mother and father and Marilyn Monroe, um, uh, Norma Jean, right. Uh, you know, uh, were walking down the street and my mother was six months pregnant with me. And literally they were telling my mother was telling me how she could just do this thing. She could walk down the street and you wouldn't know it was Marilyn Monroe. And my dad was talking about that with her. And he literally said to Marilyn Monroe, he said, you know, why don't you become Marilyn? And he literally, without missing a stride, like the ambience she took on, 
suddenly people came running out of this, you know, and they were surrounded and mobbed. And my mother, who was six months pregnant with me, had never been so frightened in, in her entire life. And like it was like a switch, something she could turn on and off. And I went, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, sure enough, I see that movie, a nice little lovely movie. It was called um, My Weekend with Marilyn, I think, with Eddie Redmayne and yeah. um, yeah. Williams. And that was in that movie, not specifically with oh. me or whatever, but I mean, that was something that was true. And um, so, I mean, you know, I don't, she was gone. I mean, she was, she died when I was like six years old, the baseball game, they probably got mixed up in the thing. There is a story that I went to uh, when I was nine years old, I went to the Dodger. I'm a huge Dodger fan, uh, you know, watch every game and, you know, did tons up until recently. Um, we go 40, 50 times a year. We went to the world series. It was me, my grandfather, Bill Getz, his best friend, who was a guy named Artie Deutsch, who after my grandfather died in the late 60s, sort of became a pseudo-grandfather. Artie Deutsch's claim to fame was that he was, and I knew none of this growing up, uh, and you'll see why this way the story ends, is that he was heir to the Sears Roebuck you know, fortune. And in 1926 or whenever it was, uh, Artie got a cold in Chicago and didn't go to school that day. So Loeb and Leopold kidnapped, kidnapped Bobby Franks and killed him instead of Artie, who was supposed to be their target. So he oh, kind of, yeah. so this is my grandfather's best friend. So he lived with this kind of golden, you know, uh, glow, you know, halo over him, I guess. Uh, so it was Artie and my grandfather and Jack Benny, who was a really close friend of my grandfather's and a lovely, funny man, uh, not cheap at all. Um, <laughs> and, and then Frank Sinatra, who's my grandfather's, one of my grandfather's two or three best friends, and Mia Farrow, who was 19 at the time and they were engaged. And so we're sitting up at the club level of Dodger Stadium and I get home and my grandmother says, so how was the World Series? And nine-year-old me, not knowing what the hell's going on, goes, oh, God, the World Series is so exciting. They come over and they take your picture all day long. You know, <laughs> I, I thought that's what happened if you went to the World Series, not realize, you know. And then I got to know uh, when my grandfather died. Um, uh, so my grandmother was, 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 her name was Edie. She was Edie Getz. And she was Edith Mayer. So she is LB's daughter. And her sister was, I mean, the Hollywood history is crazy. It's like, you know, her sister was Irene Mayer, who was married to David Selznick. And so he was my great uncle. And I still see the cousins, everyone. One of the cousins, Danny, is his son. Her son is still around at the Motion Pictures home. I'm in touch with him a little bit. But, you know, Irene, so, you know, and Irene went on to produce like Streetcar Names. I mean, it was like a, just a crazy sort of thing that I wasn't aware of. So when my grandfather died, I'm 13 and in 69 and I go to uh, his funeral uh, and it's Danny Kaye and Frank Sinatra delivering the eulogy. And that Christmas, right, me and my family go down with Uncle Frank, who I just know to be this guy who's like occasionally on TV and sings a song or two. I had no idea who he was. Um, you know, the problems when your parents and my dad, who at that time was a big, had started CMA, the big agency, moving on to producing, then went back to Warner Brothers. He was traveling all the time. I didn't see him that much, living that big Hollywood life. I didn't know who any of these people were. I just knew there was Uncle Frank in a big train set in Palm Springs. We stay down there, and I, like, fly on a plane with him because he wants to go pick up some people in Sun Valley, and he needs somebody to play backgammon. And then the story, I don't know, my grandmother never told me this. I was very close to my grandmother. She died 20 years later. Um, supposedly, according to Kitty Kelly, so I guess we should put a big asterisk by that, but that book, <laughs> I do know he saw a lot of my grandmother and certainly those six months and he had broken up with Mia, Mia and, um, uh, and Sinatra got married at my grandmother's house. We have pictures of that all around somewhere in 67. So he was kind of romancing my grandmother. And supposedly, according to that book, is that he gave my grandmother like a bracelet to say, um, you know, ask her to marry him and supposedly 
as she says, and I, I don't put this past my grandmother, saying, I can't marry you, Frank. You're nothing but a gangster. And that was the last time we saw Uncle Frank. <laughs> or the yeah. last time you saw your grandmother. Wow. But yeah, I said, well, maybe that's true. And then, and then, you know, then I go to college, and I'm listening to records and kind of cool music. I'm going, oh, that's who that is. Wow. Yeah, if you were kind of, you know, unclear about who everybody was, that means your parents weren't making a big deal out of it. No, I mean, you know, it's like, you know, the people we knew who were really close to were just great people, I thought. Mm-hmm. You know, like my sister's godfather was a guy named, um, a man named Lenny Gersh, Leonard Gersh, mm-hmm. who um, was a playwright, didn't write a ton, but also was very friendly with lots of, uh, you know, he, uh, but he wrote Butterflies Are Free. That was his, his two most famous things were Butterflies Are Free, he wrote the play and the movie. And then he also wrote um, the musical part, the interludes in Star is Born, you know, Born in a Trunk, um, and Stars Born with Judy Garland. And he knew everybody. Um, you know, my mother was really great friends with Roddy McDowell. I mean, Audrey Hepburn came to the house. She was like just Audrey, you know, mm-hmm. uh, to me. Uh, and like, you know, but people like Lenny Gersh, John Forsythe was like my sister's godfather, you know, and the nicest man yeah. I ever knew, you know. Um, and so these were people that I just knew. And so like Aaron, and Aaron Spelling was somebody who was really close to my mother. So it was strangely, when I broke into the business, I had already done a few things on my own and I kind of got sort of presented to Aaron's partner, Duke Vincent, who's still around um, up in Santa Barbara. You know, my brother was running casting for Aaron and said something at a dinner table. He said, you know, Scott in the last year is like, you know, writing with this writing partner and they've written four movies that nothing's happened with, but he sold a pilot, which was true. And he goes, how come, you know, you haven't come to us? And I'm going, well, I didn't want to, you know, uh, prey on, my family connection, I'll do it on my own. They go, go in and meet this person, let them read something. So we, it was this show called Matt Houston. I don't know if you guys remember. It was, it was a mm-hmm. show, it was, uh, Aaron's version of a cop show. And uh, so me and my partner, Dan Pine, who's a great writer who we've stayed close over the years. We're writing, we're doing stuff together again. 40 years later, he's been in the movie business. I've been in the TV business. We've got 12 novels between us and it's kind of cool, but we were starting out then. And we went in and we pitched an idea for this Matt Houston show. And they really liked the script. And they gave us another one. And then the next one, the third one, the story editor got promoted to a director because the director got in a bus, in a boat accident. And the showrunner, this guy, Michael Fisher, who was one of our mentors, who done Starsky and Hutch and that show, said, you guys want to come in for three weeks and be story editors? And our joke to Michael until he passed away like 10 years ago, whenever we'd see him, we would say, are our three weeks up yet? Because <laughs> we worked every day for decades since. So let me te- let me test another piece of your history just to see if I read this wrong. <laughs> Did you uh, get n- bedtime stories read to you by Raoul Dahl? Uh-huh. Yeah, Is that true? Yeah, that's true. That's exciting. Uh-huh. Did that give you your passion for storytelling? You know, it's 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 funny that you mentioned that. You know. Um, I actually, uh, yeah, I, when I was actually going to do my, my first book, I told that story in a letter, when I was trying to get my first book sold four years ago, uh, five or six years ago, which was a noir horror story, I told that story. Um, and um, because, you know, one of the big literary, I've been asked a lot recently when I, now that I've written these last couple of books and the books before, what drew you to, these are mostly mysteries and thrillers. I have like 10,000 of them here. I, you know, I've collected first editions and read them and have become friends I knew a few people, mystery writers, but I was like drawn to mystery writer. I, the Hardy Boys was the first thing I ever read. Oh. And my paternal grandmother would come out from Kansas City every year and she'd bring me two Hardy Boy books. And what I loved about the Hardy Boy books, besides them being great, 
you know, mysteries for an eight-year-old to read. You'd get to the end and it would say, and Joe and Frank were unaware that in a week they would be involved in the secret of the old mill. I go, ooh, another one's coming, you know? <laughs> so I think I started the series television thing going. And then I read Ross McDonald. I have all his books. And then, you know, the other guy who's a big influence. I'm just finishing this. Mm-hmm. Stephen King. Cool. Yeah. He yeah. was like my hero. Uh, and um, so, yeah, you know, what, but what had happened is Roald Dahl, um, was married to Patricia Neal, mm. um, who was, you know, a great actress. Um, and she was one of my dad's clients when he was um, running C- you know, CMA in the 60s. Um, as a, and so Roll, you know, who all I knew about Roll was that he had written um, that Chocolate Factory book, you know. Yeah. That was, and James the Giant Peach. Um, but he used to come up and tell his bedtime stories. And I would, I remember I was writing something about how I became a writer. And my, is that there was one story I particularly remember him saying, it was very simply said, he came up and said, once upon a time, there was a octopus named Gus. And, you know, um, you know, and, and then it's like, and then he hatched an egg and then you, Scott, ate an egg and then it hatched. Good night. And then he walked away. Oh. <laughs> and I'm going to sleep going like, well, I was absolutely horrified going like what's growing in my stomach, but also fascinated with the mystery of it. So, you know, th- that was kind of interesting. And the really interesting thing about Roald Dahl was, um, you know, over the years, you know, I've started reading his short story collections. You know, and he's written some of the great horror stories ever, um, you know. Uh, and but the other thing was that Pat Neal, who won the actress, won, won the Oscar for HUD, which she's fantastic in. I just saw her in a face in the crowd like two nights ago again. One of the greatest movies of all time, without question. One of the great endings of all time. Didn't we all w- oh. wish for that? I kept I kept telling my wife from, from uh, 2016 to 2020, will that guy in the orange hair have his face in the crowd moment? Oh. And, he, and he kept having them, and it didn't matter. The crowd was not... Well, I think most people... Because most people don't know what face in the crowd is, but it's a great movie. I agree. I'll tell you, it is. It's such a uh, prescient. Oh, exactly. And you know, uh, what's his name? Andy Bud Tri- Shulman that wrote, uh, you know, uh, 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 on the waterfront. What what a fantastic writer. No, no. I mean, it's so. I mean, you know, to me, I love those movies. You know, growing up. I mean, I didn't see a lot of. I mean, the movies I saw growing up were like my my five year old. You know, grandnephew sees now. It says like Mary Poppins and The Sound of Music. We go to those. But you know, when I got out of college, my first job was working for. Um, I was driving a messenger service. I mean, I was luckily working in the in TV by the time I was twenty five. In my early twenties, I was running a messenger service, and I and I ended up meeting this guy who worked for Sam Goldwyn Jr. Um, whom I, I was kind of strange when his father and my great grandfather started out together in the twenties. Um, and uh, anyway what we were doing, we were taking care of his dad's film prints and he had the 16 millimeter collection of all those great Samuel Goldwyn movies, like best years of our lives and Dodsworth and, you know, ball of fire and, um, you know, pride of the Yankees and just these incredible movies. And what I would do on the weekends is I would take the 16 millimeter projector home. I was living with a bunch of guys and we would like in the living room, which had a big white wall, we'd roll the, you know, we'd change the wheels, everything. And we'd have people come over and we watch these old black and white, movies and wow. then my friend tom bodley god rest his soul had one of the great 16 millimeter collections everything from like beautiful pristine print 16 millimeter close encounters and et when they came out oh. so i had this love of movies that was obviously ingrained in me growing up but i didn't know any of it i discovered it after you know, they were all kind of gone and I'll, I'll never forget it's like i had a 
a really nice kid who was working for me on one of my shows. And about 10 years ago, he gives me a list of his top 100 movies. And I'm going, yeah, great. And he goes, what's your number one movie? My favorite movie of all time, he goes, it's Back to the Future. I'm going, yeah, okay, that's a fun movie. But I looked, there was a list of 100 movies. There was not a movie on there before 1980. Mm. And I sat there going like, you know, there's all this stuff where all these movies came from, you know? Yeah. And I said, you, you know, I said, have you ever seen Sunset Boulevard? Have you ever seen, you know, A Place in the Sun? Have you ever seen these movies? Mm-hmm. And I just, I just wish we could force people to watch that storytelling, you know, instead of, and instead of re, just remaking them, just to see these movies, you know? What What is your favorite of all time? Well, I think the, my favorite of all time. I, you know, I think the best movie ever made in my own way because it just hits so many spots. It's why, I don't, not that he needs any freaking plug, plugging. Um, it's all referenced all over. This is The Wizard of Oz because I think it's everything. It's a musical. It's, it's romantic. It's scary. It's fun. It's imaginative. I mean, that's. I think that's like the movie movie of all time. You and know? Mary's black and white with color and shows that they can oh, both yeah, work yeah, in the same movie. Into that, it's just incredible. It's just incredible. But I, you know, to me, you know, it's uh, place in the. I, I would say place in the. Sun, I have like a five that are always in there. Like place in the sun's in there. Um, Godfather one and two can't separate them. Mm-hmm. Um, I because maybe as a writer and it is I love Butch Cassidy. I mean, I love mm-hmm. every minute of that movie. You know, I always talk about scenes with writers. It's the best opening scene, I think, of any movie ever. William Goldman, great writer. I read his book. Great writer. I mean, I, you know, I never took a writing course. You know, uh, I never, you know, I, I you know, was teaching. I don't teach at UT since the pandemic, but we did it for seven years. A kind of cool course, which I can tell you about. But, you know, the one thing I told people to read, I said, it still is apropos. The only book I ever read. Only, I've only read two books on writing ever. Um on writing King, which is just interesting, especially now writing novels and adventures in the screen trade. I mean, you know, which to me tells you everything. I mean, he wrote that book, what, 40 years ago? Mm-hmm. Every, what's the first word? What's the first line of it? Nobody knows nothing, you know? <laughs> <laughs> wow. Did, did you watch the Emmys last night? No. <laughs> I, I, you know, I was watching, I was watching the football, I was watching the Mannings on football and it's <laughs> like, I, and then I flip over to see who won and I just kind of go like, you know, I don't know. The one time I got nominated for an Emmy, I didn't even go. I, you know, it's like I, I just have something about um, everybody self congratulating themselves. Maybe if I had a huge hit show, I'd feel different. But I don't know. It, it just it's like, it just gives you a little snapshot of the the industry in this moment. And I remember when it was when when it was just so revolutionary that House of Cards and Netflix show was was winning Emmys and last night they were making jokes about the death of Netflix. So, you know, we just keep finishing these circles and starting a new circle and Oh, yeah. And, I know. It, it's uh go ahead. What were you saying? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's still storytelling though, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's still storytelling. I uh, you know, I you know, it's funny. I um I just got in contact with uh, a good friend of ours, um, Bob Greenblatt, you know, Bob, uh, you know, mm-hmm. Bob, uh, Showtime, NBC. And I know him back from Fox. I, I He was the head of NBC Entertainment when I was there and left just right, a little bit before. In the, in the night, in the 2010s. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In 2010, 2011, I remember me and my wife and Bob were having dinner and he was just about to take over NBC and told us he was doing that. And I said, there's going to come a time, you know, someday where I said to him, where this fall launch thing, you know, it's going to be, people's going to be able to like look at their televisions and go, I'll take a little of this and a little of that and program myself. And he goes, yeah, I think you're right. And I'm going, that's where we're at. You know, I mean, trying to launch a show like Monarch 
I mean, there is the reason I, I'm thrilled for the network and they're not very nice people who care immensely about what they do and they're good at what they do to try and launch something these days and to get, you know, it's like how you have to spin it to, to do that. It's just, there is no platform anymore and the pandemic just complicated things. That, that, that really, brings up a great question about writing, if you don't mind me asking. Sure. Uh, I mean, you have to, you have to write act breaks. When you're writing for a, a commercial television show, primetime TV, you have to write act breaks in there and sort of mini cliffhangers. But streaming, you can just write through to the, you know, slow build, right? I mean, uh, talk about the change that streaming is bringing to writing and producing and the, and the business of television. I think it's killing network television. At least oh, there's that's- no question. I mean, you know, we, there was even a joke. There was even a, uh, I, I've been joking about the last couple of days. <laughs> I guess the Daily Beast for crying out loud, right? But I mean, they made an issue about Monarch. They said Monarch is so bad, they said, that it, it's, it spells the end of network television. And it was because of just, it hits all those things about network television. At the same time, at the end, they go, we won't be surprised if it does really well and works, is basically what they were saying. So, you know, I mean, what's happened is, is um, there's a certain kind of show that works. Uh, You know, it's funny. I I mean, I've worked on 25 shows and with all these mysteries and thrillers and everything like that, I never, I don't watch them. I appreciate that they're well done for what they are, but the Dick Wolf shows, Law and Order, uh, NCIS, CSI, Chicago shows they're just these shows they kind of they have a formula and they work and it's comfort food somebody described one of monarchs and what they liked about it it was like they said laundry stacking a company they could do the laundry <laughs> oh man I'm going, you know and I was always as somebody who you know to me I remember he raves about you know what happened I think what 15 years we could do spoilers and Ned Stark dies at the end of you know the first year of uh you know um, Game of Thrones yeah, that was a great big thing. It wasn't the first time, but it was a big thing at the time it happened. I was always drawn towards, because I read mystery novels and thrillers and series. Like the reason I read all these books of collect people over the years is, you know, mystery, stories are stories. I'm really good at picking up plots. I can figure those out, act breaks and all that. But I come back because I want to see what's happened to that character. So I was always more drawn to what the characters were going through. And the better shows that I worked on a network, whether it was Miami Vice or The Equalizer back then, those shows, you cared about McCall, you cared about Crockett and Tubbs, you got a peek into their inside lives. And that just translated into cable, sort of cable went on and, and started to embrace the novels for television. And we, you know, so to me, I think, you know, and and now you can literally, sometimes we're kind of going like, God, we should just not watch. I'm really enjoying the patient like you talked about. I'm going like, maybe I should just not have watched it all and just waited for 10 weeks so I could just watch the whole thing like a novel. Mm-hmm. But then it's also like Dickens, right? I mean, Dickens, you know, got paid by the word and, you know, they they waited uh, every week to see what the next installment was. Yeah. And that became- were you a showrunner on Designated Survivor? I, um, my buddy John was, and I, I did the first year. But I think uh, shows like 24 and that, where they figure the formula of pacing these things out over a season, got people to tune in from week to week more than any other formula seemed to do. Yeah, but the thing was about 24, we, you know, we found a lot of Disney Survivor. I, I had lots of friends who did 24, I knew a bunch of those guys, um, is, you know, 22 is a huge animal. You know, and try and put, you know, and, and to do 22 hours to make a novel, a story, that's a lot of time. Mm-hmm. And I have always joke because of money and story. Jack Bauer in episodes 14, 15, and 16 was usually like fighting somebody in a warehouse because <laughs> they had nowhere to go before to get them to the next place because they had to stall because they knew that's where it was going, you mm-hmm. know. 
Um, and um, it's funny, uh, like the book, so my new book, so Should I Fall, which is a sequel to The Last Commandment, the one I did last last year, that, you know, the, that book last year, you know, my book last year, The Last Commandment, was an idea for a movie or a TV series in my head for 30 years. And I finally got around to writing it as a novel and I wanted to succeed as novels. But I also knew that each book could be a season of a television show. And um, and literally, but not 12, 14 episodes, like six to eight, maybe, because you read 304. I mean, if you're doing, you know, Stephen King, 600 pages and you're doing it or something, you know, that took two movies. Right. So maybe they would make it like, you know, an entire season. But for a three or 400 page book, six to eight episodes, that's and that's kind of like you can keep up the tension and everything. I just think that works so much better. Um, I mean, it's really hard. I mean, I don't want 22 of anything anymore. I don't have time. How does the work of being a detective or having an extreme career choice, how does that pull character uh, out or maybe, you know, amplify what someone's going through in their personal life and pull that to the surface? Um, you're just saying anything or like what I'm doing? Like in your mystery books. So my mystery books. So, so yeah. Well, here's the interesting thing about that. Um, so this book, which is the one that's out now, is uh, the second in a series, and I presume I'll do more at some point. Talk about it, the title before you go on. Okay, the first. Well, this new book is called "Should I Fall," and it's the it's the follow up, I should say, to the Last Commandment. But it can certainly, I think, part of this comes from me having worked a lot of, in television and storytelling. Is you can read this absolutely, and on the first three pages, you need all you need to know from the first one. So, the Last Commandment was the first book, and you know, to your point in terms of like the detective um, and my favorite kind of mysteries I read in the detective stories. Um, so it's, uh, the last commandment is about a guy named Austin Grant, who is a Scotland Yard commander. Um, this is the first book um, who is um, retiring in three weeks at, on New Year's Eve after 30 years at Scotland Yard. He lost his beloved wife to cancer a year before. And what you learn early on is he's estranged from his daughter since his mother since her mother, his wife died. And you're not sure why. And he gets pulled into, uh, it was last three weeks, he gets pulled into a case in London. There's a series of murders that you realize very quickly in the first 20 pages that are being, you know, committed according to the Ten Commandments. And it's the third in a series that opens the book. And the fourth one is like, thou shall not work on the Sabbath, thou shall not work on Sundays. And so he closes all the churches in London thinking a priest is going to get murdered, nothing happens. And what happens at the end of the prologue is a priest is murdered, found with a Roman numeral four carved in their head, but it's in New York in St. Patrick's Cathedral. And there he has to work with a young New York cop. This idea was in my head for so long, you know, that I originally thought about it as a movie idea where two, you know, that this London retiring cop, think Sean Connery 30 years ago, has to go be with a 35-year-old Robert De Niro. And the two of them work on this case together that starts in New York, goes back to London. And in the course of the book, in the first book, and then in the movie, he is reunited with his daughter who falls in love with the New York cop. Wow. And that's what the, and that's what the first book's about. You know, it spoils a little bit in the first book, you read the second book because it's sort of hidden that the, the two of them fall in love. Because what happens to a point, and I think it's a long way about answering your question, but this is what is passionate for me. Mm -hmm. This book starts six months later, should I follow the new one? And what the first six pages are, it's six months later, and John Frankel, the cop, and Rachel, you know, Grant, who is now together with her father, who's retired from the yard after the case in the first book, John and, you know, Rachel are going to be married in 10 days. And it opens with her going to Tiffany's to pick up her rings. 
And she talks about the breakfast. Of, you know, she always had Tiffany's and <laughs> the blue boxes, and there's something in there about Holly uh, Golightly. You know, mm. Shout out to my dad. Yeah. Um, and and she ends up picking up also his wedding present, which are a pair of earrings that he's going. She's going to take to his his studio apartment in Murray Hill and leave for him in his luggage. And so when and she's going to go to London to go join her father to prepare for the wedding. And so when he shows up three days before the wedding, he'll open his suitcase to go pack and see his wedding present from his wife to be. And she unlocks the door of the of the apartment and lying dead on the floor is his ex-wife, is John Frankel's ex-wife who ran off two years ago, shot to death in his locked apartment. And that's how the second book starts. Mm -hmm. And so what the second book is about is instead of going to London, her father comes to to be with Rachel with the man that she's about to marry. Is he everybody who he thinks she is? Is this going to be the son-in-law he thinks he is? He's just suspected of this murder. He goes on the run. And the question being is, is this the person I think he is and what is he hiding? Whereas the first book, people said, yeah, serial killer, et cetera. All that was interesting to me in the book was the love story. There's It's three love stories. It's a love story between a father and daughter who are reunited in the first book, a woman who meets the man of her dreams, and then the sort of love story between these two cops who couldn't be more different. And strangely enough, in that first book, when I was writing it 30 years later, finally it was in my head, I discovered things about the young cop that was much more emotional and much more interesting to me than I wouldn't have known how to do 30 years ago. And so to that point, the mysteries that really interest me, the series I love, like Dennis Lehane is a great writer. That's a good TV series to watch. If you haven't watched Blackbird, he, he's written that series. But he wrote a series of books, five books about these two characters, Patrick and Angie. There's a really pretty, uh, Ben Affleck's first movie he directed that Casey Affleck was in, Gone Baby Gone. Mm -hmm. That's actually the fourth book in that series. And in the end of, the, of that five-book series, and when you get to that end of that movie, there's a really rips-your-soul-out thing that happens in a decision. These two private eyes who are kind of meant to be together have to deal with each other, and it tears them apart. And when you're watching a movie, it's pretty gut-wrenching. But if you read the books, you get to the fourth book. You're four books invested in these characters. It destroys you because you want them to be together. So that, to me, it's a long way to answer your question, but that's the way, to me, I'm interested in all the mysteries I read uh, this friend of mine, I, I, not friend, I know Faye Kellerman, she's married to Jonathan Kellerman, but Faye's just wrapped up after 30 years, 30 books about this rabbi's, uh, you know, the Lazarus Decker mysteries and about this rabbi's widow and a, a young cop who's a waspy cop who ends up marrying her. And the books, what I've always felt like, find a seminal event. If I keep this series going, it's always going to be a seminal event in these characters' lives. I can build a cool mystery around it. I've done enough plots to do that. I want you to feel something. Mm -hmm. So that's the, and that's to me what, really appeals to me about the best detective literature and mystery literature. Is there any that's similarity? Why, that's why Crawdads is so interesting to you because yeah. you care. It's a mystery, but you care about that girl. Absolutely. Is there any similarity in writing arcs in episodic television and writing a novel? Is it freer? Is it a, is it a different discipline? You've got two or three plots going on simultaneously with a novel. You know, I think, you know, I kind of made it akin to, um, you know, I'm, I'm kind of lucky because, you know, a lot of people I know, I've become friends with a lot of novelists over the years. I mean, I've been lucky to work with King. A few, I've never met him. Uh, I got an interesting email with him, a nice email from him a year ago about my Ooh. book. Uh, but, uh, uh, you know, but Harlan Coben I've worked with, Karen Slaughter, you know, and a bunch of these. And I've become friends with a lot of mystery writers the last couple of years because the community is so supportive and giving. And we all, you know, and a lot of them are also interested in me helping, you know, adapt their books into TV. And if we can, great. But what ended up happening, when I sort of said, if I was going to do my autobiography about television, I would call it, it television is not a radio show. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. it's like, and I tell writers going, you know, 
it is there in front of you. You know, you don't have to like spell it all out. One of the problems I think you both know with network television is they spell it out. It feels like the least common denominator half the time. When I started writing books late, I started writing books seven or eight years ago, is I kind of went, wait a second, it is a radio show. And you have to describe everything. Well, language, that's a good point, though. Language is more important in a novel than it is in a television series. Well, right. You have to to set the television screen, right? You know, and I think what's always been good for me is because I came from, you know, 30 years, 30 plus years of writing screenplays and thinking visually, um, you know, I know how to slow it down, you know, and kind of, and my narratives were always kind of cool because I was always kind of, people can accuse my scripts and I'm always moving the camera and the narratives because I'm telling you what to look at. So I kind of had that discipline, but the difference was, you know, when we sit down in television, I used to say, um, I guess maybe I got it from George Carlin, you know, the George Carlin thing, remember that great routine he used to do about football and baseball, mm-hmm. you know, or he used to say in football, it's sudden death and in baseball, it's extra innings, you know, he says, <laughs> we play at a stadium, we play in a park, you know, it, it's like, I kind of started writing television, the little I've done in movies, I've been pretty much a television guy. Um, is it's like basketball and football and baseball is like writing novels because you are, especially in television, you're writing, like you say, guys to like an hour or a series of hours and you need to hit commercials and network, right? But certainly at the end of an hour, you need to be at a specific place in a specific time. So you got to get there and you got to make sure your characters are doing stuff that doesn't feel out of character, but they got to do it in a certain amount of time. Like there's an hour to a football game. There's 48 minutes to a basketball game. In novels, I literally written these five, 400-page novels with no outlines. I've been pretty good at structure. Like, all I knew writing this novel, and people like this even better than the first one, is that all I knew was that opening I told you. I didn't know who did it. I didn't know why they did it. I just said it's a good hook. I know, spoiler alert, yeah, I want them to be married at the end. That's all I know. I'll get there. I can figure that out. And, you know, it'll end when it ends. You know, it's like, you know, a baseball game ends when it ends. And, and to me, Harlan, my friend Harlan would say, I realize we kind of write the same way. It's like he says, if I know I'm going to go from New Jersey to San Francisco, I know where I'm going to start. I know where I'm going to end. He says, but I could take Highway 80 all the way across. Or I could take, you know, a trip to the North Pole, take a dog sled to Alaska, a plane to Hawaii and a boat to San Francisco. I'll still get there. I'll find that way. I've always described when we're plotting, I kind of know the start. I might know the ending. as like a maze. But I don't solve a maze where you just go from the start. I'm going to start here, and then you kind of work here. And then you kind of fill in the middle. And then since you know you're at the end here and the start here, instead of going right at each other, you go different ways, you know, and you can get there if you have a good sense of direction. So that's what I found. I found it very freeing and a lot less people to um, answer to. (laughs) Do you find – oh, absolutely true. Do you find that um, connective tissue comes to you when you're in front of your computer or – when you're elsewhere elsewhere uh, no i'm uh, i joke with my wife i say i should just carry a shower around with me because i think it's <laughs> in the shower so it's like the water hitting my head and getting it going i play a lot of golf so um and, and uh i'm walking around on the golf course in the mornings and i'm like off the woods my friends going what's he doing because he's thinking of the next plot to his book uh you know i have lots of everybody's every you know you guys have talked to hundreds of writers i'm sure Everybody has a different process, but they're really two kinds. They're the kinds who write every day. I admire those people. Um, or like Billy Wilder, arguably the greatest writer in the history of the film, right? You know, um, used to say when he sat down at the typewriter, it was written. That's kind of me. I mean, I know I can't just sit down and go, oh, what am I going to write today? No, like I wrote the pilot 
to, I wrote a pilot to The Last Commandment because we're going to try and turn it into a TV show. Um, and so, and we're calling it Austin Grant. We're going out to some British actors now. Wow. And I wrote the pilot, like, literally, I mean, and Agent Live, a couple people read it. And, and it's cool. If you like the book, you like that. I wrote it in two days. I've been thinking about doing it for a long time. Yeah. I mean, I, it's just, it kind of pours out. It percolates I mean, and then it comes yeah, it pours out. I'm always writing. While I'm talking to you, <laughs> I'm writing. It's it's my the reason I speak so fast. It's my mouth trying to catch up with what's going. No, on. No, it's fantastic. It's an action-packed hour. Now, <laughs> before we get away from your book, if I should fall, talk about the origin of that name. You're a major Springsteen fan, so that that, that, yeah, that title that, is that a slight from, variation. Yes. Um, well, okay. So that comes from. Um, I originally called it uh, "Till Death" because I thought you know "Till Death Do Us Part," and, and and all the chapters are. You know, I mean, the parts are separated until to love and honor. It's the wedding vows. Um, but when I was talking to my publisher, he said, it's a cool title, but I know there's an Ed McBain book that's called that. And I'm going like, oh, I hate titles that are hard to come up with. And so I'm taking a walk. And I'm like I said, yeah, I'm a big Bruce fan. I've seen him over 300 times. Um, <laughs> and it's his own story. Uh, and I love that song, Should I Fall? You know, I mean, if I should fall behind. Uh, and which is a wedding song. Um, a lot of people play at their weddings. And so if I should fall behind, wait for me. So I kind of went, should I fall? Uh, what's been interesting is my first book, uh, I've, written two, I've written four books. The first book is a noir book that becomes a kind of a horror sort of thing. It, uh, it was originally called Dark Sands, and it is called Descending Sun, uh, S-O-N, about this young man who gets into some difficulties. And that comes from Because of the Night, which is Take mm -hmm. Me Now, it's the sun descends yeah uh, and uh and the other funny thing is my agent at the time um uh book agent at the time read the first book and you know there's a dedication was to holly my wife and acknowledged in the back and she goes haven't did you like you didn't mention the boss even though the boss is in the books you know all the books at some point um i said did you read the dedication and it says to holly and it says she's the one and the second book is to Holly, my beautiful reward. And it's there, it, it's, every book is dedicated to my wife, and the dedication is a Springsteen song. So it's, it's I'm sort of like one of those weird groupies. So I, I haven't, unlike you, we haven't been to the theater. But I did tell my wife I am going to go see him when he comes here next year. That's the one. I'll probably get me to a stadium. Have you Have you met him? I did meet him once. Yeah, you know it's funny. Uh, <laughs> I can tell you that story. Uh, you know it's funny because growing up. Um, you know, meeting all the people, I, you know, I couldn't care less. You know, I mean, it's, I mean, they're, they're nice people. They're nice people. But you have a few idols. I mean, it was sitting on the wall are three pictures, four pictures in this. Here's another Springsteen uh, line, Candy's room. You know, in Candy's room, there, there are pictures of heroes on the wall. In my office, there's a picture of um, Sandy Koufax and Willie Mays over here. There's a picture, that picture way in the back there is of my grandfather, uh, that uh, that uh, Thomas Hart Benton drew, and then on the side there's a picture of Bruce. Um, so, so me, it's like those are some of the idols I had growing up. You know, you know, nothing very original to my grandfather. Um, but so, you know, I kind of never want to meet any of these people. Um, but I started writing. I saw I saw Bruce when I was a teenager at uh, when he was on uh, the Born to Run, doing Born to Run at, uh, at the Roxy, and I knew his music and I thought I'd seen like the second coming of whatever. And I'd heard Incident on 56, 57th Street. And I just thought it was this great poetic sort of song. And I, you know, you know Springsteen says he wants to uh, write like Dylan, sing like Roy Orbison, and sound like Phil Spector's Wall of Sound with the band. And it just hits a lot of things. They always say, 
the music you listen to in your teens, the music you can, you know, relate to, you know, your entire life. So mine's Bruce, the Beatles, and everybody else, you know. So I, I never met him, you know. I knew people who knew him. I, you know, we, we got tickets from people who knew him. Mm. So strange, but the, so the, the Bruce Springsteen story, which is kind of a fun little story, which is like nineteen ninety one. So he was uh, he was with Patty Scalfa. They were pregnant. Uh, just she just got pregnant, and they weren't married yet. And I'm on a Sunday night with my wife and her best friend Deborah, who's out here from New Jersey, whose husband David is also a big Springsteen fan. We go to a lot of shows together. But he was she was just out visiting us, and we're in this store in Westwood. Do you remember that store, Politics? It was like a yeah clothing store. It was next to the Hamburger Hamlet. Mm-hmm. We're going to a movie on a Sunday night, me and the two girls, and it was sibling rivalry with Kim. Christy Alley. I'm the only person that remembers that movie because of that night. And we're in politics and the girls are trying some stuff on. We're the only ones in the store. And the guy who works in the store said, you see, you just walked in the door. And there's Bruce walking in the door. He's picking up like a vest. And I'm going, he's signing like an autograph. I'm going, okay. You know, I have two autographs in my life. I have Bill Shoemaker's, I'm a horse racing fan or was for a long time on his last ride. And I have Kofax's autograph or somewhere. And I said, so I go to my wife who's in the changing room. I go, I said, Bruce is here. Do you have a piece of paper? And she goes, yeah. And she had one of those like old those old message pieces of paper that said like while you were out those. <laughs> so I took it and I go up to see Bruce and I said, hey, I said, would you mind signing? He goes, oh sure. The girls come rushing out and they're bouncing over to go see you know Bruce and and Deborah goes, can you have my husband's a big fan? Can you write? Sure. So we rip it in half and he goes to David, best for Springsteen, to Scott, best for Springsteen. And my wife, God bless her soul, looks at Bruce Springsteen and says, I just want you to know this is like your biggest fan ever. So we talked for a couple minutes and we left. So, okay, so that's great. We have these autographs. So then we decide we're going to get them framed. And we figure we'll have one on the left coast here. And they live in New Jersey and on the East Coast. And my friend David does some photographs. So we got those, you know, know, framed too. And Deborah gets her frame, you know, autographed. But then the framer, calls some fancy smanchy framer over here who i think's out of business finally who basically says uh you know your pictures are fine but there was a piece of paper in there and we're going like they lost the autograph oh and wow. my wife well i got to do everything my life she goes oh my god I, I, they said oh we know him but they don't know him they we get it like larry evans books or whatever so they gave us some pictures for free so for the next year if you met my wife for the first time she'd go hi i'm holly shepherd uh, i lost my husband's Bruce <laughs> <laughs> So wow. I'm running my first TV show. It's all stories, right? Um, is like I'm running my first TV show, and I have this uh, guy, really nice guy, uh, James Keach, Stacy Keach's mm-hmm. brother, uh, who is uh, I make him the producer director on the show, and he calls me up at Christmas time, and he says, "I have something for you. I want to be on the other end of the line when you get it." And I'm going, "Oh, great! Like, what do you do? Give us a dog or something?" I, uh, <laughs> so I'm at my mother-in-law's, and it's like you know, three days before Christmas, and this guy comes out of a station wagon he's carrying you know something this big that's wrapped up i open it up and it's a framed tunnel of love promotional poster from berlin so it's in german but on it it says merry christmas holly and scott best wishes bruce Springsteen." wow and i got like tears in my eyes and i call so i called james and i go like what did you do I, I, this is like the greatest thing he's ever given me and he said well what happened was is that he told his manager this story and his manager was having a baby like two months before and up at Cedars, the same wing that Bruce was, they closed it down the same day. So he'd gotten like a little guitar for Evan Springsteen, who'd just been born, and he met friends, and Bruce gave him something, and he'd become friends with the, you know, his security. So when he heard this story, he says, let me see if I can do something. So he called up the security and told them this story, 
And, and he said, look, he's not a freak. He's just, he runs a TV show. He just wants an autograph, you know? It's like, and he, and he says, well, because Bruce has been pretty particular because he just signed a Fender guitar and somebody sold it for like 10 grand. I'm going, no, he's not going to do that. And so they told Bruce the story. And it turns out he was a really big fan of James's because he liked the Long Riders, the Walter Hill movie that they starred and wrote. And so he said, I can't just give him an autograph. Let me look around and see what he had. And the only thing he had was this folded up tour promotional poster of Tunnel of Love and being the Jews who don't celebrate Christmas, Christmas thing. That's <laughs> is, it, is, is it hanging in that room? Can you point the the computer? No, it's not hanging. Oh, okay. Um, I want to talk about quantum, quantum Leap for a moment because there's certain shows okay. that kind of like attract a cult following. And can you yeah. predict that in advance? And like, and what happens? And who do you hear from? And you know, give us a little window into that world. In terms, say, say what, just what's a cult, a cult following, or something that is just forever. You know, um, the fan based. I don't know. I mean, I know one. I know there's been a change. I guess it's coming on next week again, right? You know, we we actually almost we actually were talking ten years ago about rebooting it then. Um, you know, that's a. I learned a lot from Don Belisario, who you know is kind of a lion in the business and lots of stories about. And he was very kind to me. You know, I, I could be tough on guys. Um, I was doing. I'd finished Miami Vice. You know, I did the last year of Miami Vice. And I was pretty tired and the guys were running Universal. We were doing, I was under contract to them. They said, look, we got this new show. There are three shows in. They got like an order of 12. You might like to go, you, you really kind of dig it. We need help. Go meet this guy down both. Sorry, it was like, you know, quantum, you know. And I watched the pilot and speaking of Back to the Future, I kind of went like, wow, this is kind of like Back to the Future. It goes back, it's all this kind of fun stuff. And I'll never forget. I mean, I tell this to writers all the time. You know, going back to what you're asking Lee's about detectives and motivations, and I think why this is this show worked, and people love this show so much was I don't remember the pilot to that show, but I we I you know we were just doing the first few episodes. I was trying to get the just. I remember I wrote a, the first script I wrote was one where he <laughs> where he popped into being a private eye in the '30s. Funny idea. Let I would do that, but that's what I did. And I remember Don rewriting the script considerably and watching what he was concentrating on. And then I and I'd seen the pilot. And then the pilot, which was a two-hour pilot, um, was him jumping into an air, him popping into Sam popping into an Air Force pilot's life. And it was like very, it was very Top Gun influence because that's what that you know had come out a couple of years before. And Don was in the Air Force and was very proud of that. And a big adventure. At the end of the day, the reason, remember, he always had to figure out the reason he was there to leap. And it was never the big adventure. It was the thing he was supposed to do. And that thing, he was supposed to name the baby of the pilot, the baby the, the baby that the pilot and his wife were having. And then he popped. But at the end of that pilot, the last five minutes of that pilot, he pops into, to show what the show's about, he pops into the body in 1953 of a little, a minor league baseball player. And Sam's there and he realizes 1953, he's still trying to get what he's thinking of. And he goes, before he goes for his at bat, he realizes when it is, and he turns out the dugout, and he goes down the hall, and he reaches in his pocket for a nickel, I presume at the point, and puts a nickel on the payphone, and he calls his father and has this conversation with his father, who had died, who was dead in his present day. And he got to have a conversation with his father and say everything that he wanted to. And I remember that, you know, is like that, those were in the days when they used to test shows and they had the freaking dials, you know? Mm-hmm. And if this dial that says they're bored, the dials went through the roof. Wow. And I said, that's what it is about television. It's the heart. And it's like, you know, we always, when we did Dead Zone, we always talk about what's the heart of Johnny Smith, you know? And it's like, you know, the, the other huge influence to me 
growing up because I used to watch them black and white, and I would sit around taking them on at lunchtime. Was, was the Twilight Zone? You know, I mean, I everybody goes, "What's your favorite TV show?" Not even a thought. You know, by far and away, there's the Twilight Zone to me, and everything else. Best writing, best story. Two people in the room tell you those stories. You know, and you know, and and I could recite every one of those stories. I can watch three seconds of it and tell you what those original, you know, I can tell you what episode it is. I can tell you what it's called. Um, and, you know, I would make any, when we we're teaching a class in Texas, I would always talk about like it was a third or fourth, it was like the third episode it was an episode called walking distance with gig young, who's a terrific actor. And it's the story about the guy who's it's the businessman who's like jumping out of his, can't stand his career in his life. And he breaks down near his small hometown and he walks into his hometown. It's walking distance from the, you know, from the garage. And he suddenly is back in his hometown. It's 20 years before, it's 30 years before. It's when he was a kid. And he realized he's been transformed. He actually sees himself as a kid. And he's able to actually interact with his father, who doesn't believe who he is, and finally believes who he is. And he scares the kid. And there's this great speech that only like Rod Sumner could have written, where he says, I understand who you are. I don't understand how that came from, but you can't stay here. And he says, This is his summer. Everybody's entitled to one summer and their, you know, their 10-year-old summer. And he says to him, he says, Is it that bad where you came from? And he says, I think so, Pop. He says, we'll try and make it better. And he goes back a changed man. And I said, it's that storytelling in genre fiction. That's why I think Stephen King's a master at what he does. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, the reason it works is because it's these kids who are scarred by something that happened to them as children. That this, you know, and, and this thing preys on what, you know, what eats at them. The reason The Shining is, you know, you know besides maybe being a horror novel about writer's block, you know, it's about abuse and alcoholism. I mean, to me, the best stuff has so much layering under it. All the rest of the stuff is just like tinsel, you know. It's just really offering the possibility of a correction. Right, exactly. You know, and I think that's to me. So when I'm working on anything, that's what I have to find. You know, mm -hmm. it, what is that correction that you, so to speak? Because mm -hmm. you know, it's, I mean, I'm the biggest sap in the world, you know, and I, and I think somebody a long time ago, you know, the reason I stayed in drama or genre stuff was, you know, comedies are great. And somebody wants to be, you know, we laugh, we laughed, and then we stopped. And I'm going, the thing I, you know, think of, you know, I'm going, greatest ending of any movie ever, maybe, Planet of the Apes, right? Mm -hmm. Stunning ending, but you think about what it meant. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, it's like, you know. It's a it, warning. It, it's a warning, you know. I mean, it's a warning. It's, you know, it's all that stuff, you know. Um, it's also sometimes I get too good for my own good. It's like when um, when The Sixth Sense came out, I remember seeing the ad and I'm going, I think I know what this movie's about. Because, really? Yeah. I went with my assistant. I went with her and I said, you know, I said, I'm going to write four words down in my pocket, you know, <laughs> and, walk in. and I wrote BW is dead, you know, and and I walk in and I watch in the first four minutes. I go, shit. So I got to have the experience that everybody had the second time. Mostly I got to have it the first time. Um, but the other thing is what's great is when you like I used to watch my niece and nephews growing up because we don't have kids is to me is like you sit there and you watch like a Twilight Zone episode. Do you remember? I don't know how much you guys watch that show, but do mm -hmm. you remember like Beauty Lies in the Eye of the Beholder where the yep. woman's in the and it turns out they're all pigs and she's beautiful. Was it Gig Young in that one too? Huh? Was Gig Young? No, no. Oh, it know. was um, what's that guy's name? That really handsome guy. Uh, oh, the guy who was the professor in yeah. the. Nanny and the, Nanny the, the that guy, yeah. But the voice, interestingly enough, is the woman with the unwrapper is Donna Douglas, who is yeah. in the Beverly Hillbillies. Mm -hmm. her, her voice was so horrible, they got another voice. <laughs> oh, but, I didn't but, know that. But, but to me, the wonder of watching a child or a young person is when I watch, I will watch that show or something with somebody for the first time, and I don't watch the show, I watch them. Oh, 
Richard uh, Long. I, Richard Long, that name popped Richard up. Long, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Do you Long. still teach, uh, Scott? I don't, we haven't done it right now. We did a really interesting thing. Um, and I think just because of the pandemic, we had to stop it for a while. So I first taught when I was at Stanford 40 years ago. Uh, I taught a course, uh, so I started writing. Um, when I was an undergraduate, I taught a course on detective novels. Because hmm. uh, I've, I've been reading them since I was a kid, obviously. And I went to my English professor, a guy named Rob Bohemus, who just recently retired, who was chairman of the you know, and he and, and they had this thing called undergraduate specials. You could create a course. It was it was it was an alternative curriculum, but deemed academic. And he fought for me to do a reading list that I had a reading list that was Poe, uh, Doyle, uh, Dorothy Sayers, Agatha Christie, Rex Stout, Ellery Queen, and then uh, Hammett, Chandler, and McDonald. And you know, I've already read these books, and I would start writing little skits, and I would give lectures on how to kill people in locked rooms and everything. So I did this for like you know, I did that for like six quarters at Stanford. Um, and what's really funny, I think I was like, we were like the first people in the country ever to do anything like that. And now it's like I walk into Stanford, I go to another university, and they all have courses like this now because it's okay. been deemed academic, the literature. But so what happened is I always had this idea about teaching, and, and I hooked up with a, one of my best friends, and we've written a lot of stuff together, a woman named Cindy McCreary, who is a screenwriter. Um, she was like wrote Disney movies and uh, wrote rom-coms, and I write so it's a perfect match because we do totally different stuff. And she always talked though. Uh, and she's considered, you know, like 20 years younger than me. And we were developing stuff with her. And she used to teach at UCSB. And about 10 years ago, she got invited or asked to go teach. And she moved with her husband and two young kids to Austin, to UT, to teach a course, to teach, to teach you know, the grad school there and the undergrads. And she said, do you want to do like a, you know, maybe do like a, a you know, a, a Skype, like, you know, lecture or something like that. I said, well, I've had this idea, like, you know, that maybe I should, um, I kept wanting to do it because I'm still like four units short from graduating from Stanford. I'm still <laughs> like, because I, I didn't take a fourth year of French. And I thought like, you know, all this stuff, somebody should kind of give me a degree, not that it's hurt or help, whatever. I didn't want to be a doctor. Um, so uh, I said, I had this idea, of course. And what we ended up doing was we created, a, we wrote a pilot together that's a whole weird story of its own books to movies. That's a whole Hollywood business story. I can tell you sometime, but what the idea was we wrote a pilot and then this, the first year we did it for seven consecutive years for every fall quarter for three and a half months, every Tuesday morning, I drove to LAX, got on a plane, flew to Austin, Cindy picked me up. We go have a bite. Then we go teach for three hours. We go have a drink on the way back. I get on a plane, never miss a night coming home or Hollywood come. We go down for three days, once a quarter. And we did it for like, I would, you know, do this for 14 weeks. We had a class of 12 and we taught a writer's room to where we would not only teach how we would then have this, each student write their own episode and we create a season, you know, of a television series. And it, you know, allowed them to learn what it was like to work in a writer's room and to collaborate. Because the first thing I said, if you want to work in television, you have to be collaborative. You know, if you don't want to collaborate, then go write movies or books um, because your episode five is only as good as six and seven, three. I could give you all that stuff. And it was interesting. We just did it as an exercise. But of course, the first thing we did, we said, well, maybe we can sell this. And so we suddenly, next thing we knew, Robert Redford got a hold of the first thing we did. And we almost got it made by Greenblatt at NBC. And, and then we did it seven times. It led to me and Cindy selling like eight or nine pilots of our own. We got commissioned three or four times to do this. But meanwhile, the great thing was always about the students. And half of those students that we taught over those seven years all came to Hollywood and more than half of them were working on television shows. And I'd like to think, and they always sort of say part of it is they got to step ahead because they kind of got the idea of what that collaborative writing room process, which I have tons of problems with anyway. 
you know, which I think, I think there's a lot of problems about writer's rooms, mm-hmm. which I could go into at some point. Um, yeah. I think writers write, you know, um, but, uh, and that course was, a was an example of that, but it was great. And then when the pandemic happened, you know, they didn't teach it all for a semester, one year, and then they combined things and I wasn't going to fly in, you know, after seven years, I mean, Cindy and I are still really close and I have a few things we're doing together, but I think I kind of gave my version of the, I mean, I did it all for free. They finally paid me to like at least pay me for airplanes. At the end of each semester, what single piece of advice did you give to students for launching into a career in real show business? Who's my number when you come here? No, uh, <laughs> I, uh, um, I would say I, my big thing was write what you what you write something you want to write that you want to see. Don't mm-hmm. you know, write what you feel. Write what you'd watch. You know. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, you know, I would say this to Bob all the time. Other people I do run networks. You know, they go, they want this, they want that. I'm going, who's they? Introduce me to they. I say, Bob, you're they, and you don't even know what you want. You know, I mean, it's like because until you see it. And the bottom line is because when I'm like, to me, when I'm running shows or you know, reading scripts, work with people, I don't want to read a spec version of a like you know, like a, a sample copy of an episode. I want to read how you write. You know, you know, because I want to see what's important to you. I can see how you write. I can see where you think. And and I really believe that if you're a good writer and you're all connected to anybody who knows somebody who knows somebody, if you keep doing it, you will get recognized. We all know you could be a great actor and you might never see the light of day because that is just so much more of a crapshoot. Mm-hmm. Because the one thing you do as a writer you can do, you can sit there and you can keep working on it yourself all the time. Yeah, that's that's an amazing piece of advice. Well, we want to thank you so much for being with us, Thanks Scott. Like, people can find your books on Amazon. And where else should people go to find you? Um, if you go to my website, which is uh, www.scottshepherdauthor.com, that has like the social media that I'm on when I can be on. Oh, there you go. That's it. Yeah. And all those little things up on the right. I guess that's the stuff there where I've posted stuff occasionally. Yeah. I'm not very good at that. You know, I'm kind of old fashioned that way. You'd like to think the work speaks for itself, but it's very nice people like you that give you platforms to say, go read my books or watch our TV shows. Right. All right, well, here come our closing credits. Fritz and I have created a web hub to help you shop for gifts and save democracy in one fun move. Giftofdemocracy.com curates great swaggy merch from candidates and causes committed to protecting and defending our democracy. Fritz and I make no money here. We don't need it. We're not running for office. Our site is like a mall directory sign that points you towards the merchandise pages of candidates and causes that are working to save our democracy. It's the donation that counts democracy makes a great gift. Thank you so much for joining us. We would love to continue this conversation with you on Instagram and Twitter, where we are at MediaPathPod, and on Facebook, where our show page is MediaPathPodcast, and our Facebook group is MediaPath with Fritz and Wheezy Podcast Community. You can find full video podcast episodes loaded with bonus visual content on our YouTube channel, Media Path Podcast. You can write to us at mediapathpodcast.com. If you enjoy the show, please give us a nice rating in Apple Podcasts and talk about us on social media. You can sign up for our fun and dishy newsletter at mediapathpodcast.com. We want to thank our wonderful guest, Scott Shepard. Our team includes Dina Friedman, John Maddox, Sharon Bellio, Bill Filipiak, Thomas Hubble, Mason Brown, and you. Our theme music is by me and John Maddox. I am Louise Planker, here with Fritz Coleman and Scott Shepard, and we will see you along the media path. It would be impossible to drop more show business names in one podcast than we just did with you. Yeah, I think that's a record.